Hey, Richard Gottlieb. How you doing? I'm doing great. We are so pleased to welcome back a guest who's been with us before, Eric Pliner. He is CEO of YSC, a leadership strategy consulting firm, which is in 10 countries around the world, headquartered in London. And Eric, we are so happy to have you back. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me back, guys. It's great to be here. And this is the Playground Podcast with me, Chris Byrne, and my co-host and cohort, Richard Gottlieb. And we are brought to you by Global Toy Experts, the toy guy, and marketing and media agency, Chizcom. And Eric, uh, there's been a lot of concern recently about Disney. And obviously, Disney has made some missteps in management. But what we wanted to talk about today was not so much going into what Disney did, but really talking a lot about what managers can take away from that in understanding their role, both ethically and corporately in the current environment. Eric, it's really nice to have you on the show, and it's purposely timely. We wanted you on because you are an ethicist. You're a business ethicist. I don't know if I've told our listeners before, but I once heard a business ethicist explain that there would be no concept of business ethics if good business always meant good ethics. We appreciate you being on. Uh, you have written about the concept that brands are no longer able to avoid controversial topics, that due to social networks primarily, they become so connected and linked with their consumers, who are their constituents, that they cannot avoid issues that are important to stakeholders. And we think that the issue for Disney in Florida right now is highly illustrative of this, that the Walt Disney Company had an internal rebellion on behalf of their employees about their not taking a position on the don't say gay bill in Florida. Disney has since said that. And now the politicians are reeling against them and threatening them. Could you walk us through the uh, what's going on in Florida with the Walt Disney Company, their employees, their consumers, the politicians? Kind of give us the lay of the land. And what does this tell us about brands and the modern consumer? So let me let me back out even a little bit further before we get into the specifics of Disney in Florida and just say, as you intimated, that business leaders are encountering a new ethical context that many of them have never encountered before. And that is that they cannot be apolitical. For a long time, the idea was business can stay out of politics, except behind closed doors when it really mattered to uh, to their business to get involved in lobbying a legislator or influencing a policy. But over the last probably dozen years or so, there's been this slow initially and now quite rapid move from businesses saying our, our focus is on maximizing shareholder value to businesses saying actually shareholders are important but shareholder primacy isn't everything. We got to think about lots of stakeholders. So you get the business roundtable that in 2019, 181 CEOs come together and say, 
yes, our shareholders are important, and also our customers are important, and our employees are important, and our communities that we operate in are important, and the planet is important, and we're going to play a key role as business in driving good for all of those things. Well, guess what? Lots of people were listening, and so they all got lots of praise for making those statements, but very soon after, the world turned around and said, hang on, you made a commitment to caring about all of these constituencies, and now you've got to uphold it. And so when you look at what's happening at Disney, you've got employees and customers saying, hang on a second, you made a commitment to us. And part of that commitment means that if you're going to run a business in Florida, you're going to have lots of employees in Florida, then you have to be prepared to stand for what matters to us in Florida if you want to continue to receive our dollars and, uh, and our employment. And we're at a moment when another shift in the ethical landscape is that a lot of a lot of power that had gone away from workers is suddenly going back to employees. The job market looks different than it used to, and companies are working really hard to hold on to people. You've got Amazon and Starbucks facing a kind of unionization that they hadn't seen before. And Disney now has to say, how do we keep our customers and our employees happy? and also not lose our preferred tax status and stand for what we say we have stood for among audiences that may have very different interests right now. And it seems like a challenge to me because this seismic shift of who is the employee is very different. When Richard and I started in our careers, it was still very much the military style of management. You should be glad you have a job, period. You know, keep your head down. You're glad you have a job. Well, we've got a young workforce who my joke is always they chose the color of the family car when they were five. So they they expect to be heard and respected and they have grown up with that. So there is a disconnect between people in an older style of management and this young consumer. And and how do you bridge that gap? What does the older guy need to know? Because the younger the younger people, they're the ones who are coming up. Yeah, well, the first thing is that any messages that you as a leader are going to communicate about what you stand for and what you will not stand for, you better be prepared to follow through on those statements with actions. Our employees are no longer going to tolerate us saying that we stand for things and reaping the rewards of, of those messages without then seeing us follow through consistently. And they are voting with their feet. When you take that generational shift that you described, Chris, and you multiply that times the last two years of COVID and, you, and this phenomenon of the so-called great resignation, suddenly we realize that it's not uh, you employees should be grateful you have a job, it's you organization should be grateful that you have me as an employee. And that means that you're going to have to take a stand on the things that matter to me, or I'm going to go somewhere else. That's, that's daunting for all of us who are leaders who are not used to that particular sharing of power, but it's absolutely possible to manage by making sure that people feel heard, that you understand your concerns, that you understand their concerns, and that you are managing your response with integrity. That means you got to do your homework about what really matters to you. And I talk about in my new book, Difficult Decisions, the idea that your morality, what you believe is right and wrong, 
your ethical context, what the world is telling you is helpful or harmful, and your role responsibilities, who are the stakeholders that you serve, are things you need to think about in advance, regardless of what level of leader you are, because a challenge is going to come at you that you haven't even thought of yet. The more you think about those things in the abstract, the more ready you'll be, whether it's your employees, your customers, or the government of the state that you're operating in, when they throw a challenge at you that you weren't anticipating. Well, let's talk for a minute about the dynamic, the historic dynamic between business and politics. Yeah. That was a quid pro quo. The business says, I'll give you, Mr. Power, Ms. Politician, money. Yep. And you will, in turn, support bills that are important to me. You would think that a politician would be wary of losing that money. On the politician's side, these politicians that are threatening Disney with taking away Mickey the Mouse's intellectual property rights, which they can't do. What are these people thinking or not thinking? Well, a big part of what they're thinking about is their own political careers and the platform that they can get to be able to use this controversy to build their presence on a national stage. We've got a governor who's clearly contemplating a run for president in an upcoming cycle, who's thinking about how to distinguish himself from some of the other candidates. And we know that in this era of incredible polarization, that it's the sound bites and the big visible actions that seem to align with constituents' concerns that go a much longer way than traditional approaches to policy. If I can get a 30-second clip of me denouncing Disney on TV, that's a great way to get eyeballs and ultimately vote when the time comes for people to make choices about where my career and my platform go next. That sounds awfully cynical, but it's also real. Um, They're not just looking at their responsibilities in the context of where they are today but where they might want to go next. I don't believe Disney actually threatened any action. They didn't threaten to pull out of Florida. All they said was, we don't like it. Yeah. So it seems to be an overreaction on the part of the politicians and perhaps a shot across the bow. Yeah. But I would think Disney will go elsewhere with their political donations. I think that's a great point, Richard. The the actual actions that Disney didn't engage in, by the way, they didn't engage in the actions initially, but then after a backlash from their employees turned around and said, hey, we have a point of view about this, are not really that substantive. They don't really wield the kind of power on these issues that some commentators would purport that they do. And... They make for great sound bites. Disney is representing children and children are a precious resource and we have to protect them from X, Y, Z. And that's exactly the premise of this highly politicized, not particularly science based (laughs) legislation. And there are lots of children who benefit from hearing adults in their schools talk openly about their identities, the identities of their families and communities, and so on. Disney's problem is that they've tried to have it both ways for too long. 
And so, you know, if you look at some of their activities over the last couple of decades, they haven't officially endorsed, for instance, the so-called gay days at Disney, but they've allowed independent organizers to organize that activity every year and have had no problem accepting the dollars from those consumers who have spent with them. So they've been able to say, well, listen, we appeal to everybody and their employees and a portion of their customer base are saying, not good enough anymore. You can't run this company without us, and therefore we need you to stand by us when you have influence over policy in this state. It sounds a little bit like what my my mom used to call damned if you do, damned if you don't. <laughs> and and because Disney wanted to not not get down in the mud, and then when their employees asked them to to take a stand, they took a stand and a lot of people said it was too late. So it was it was a real mess. And so my question is, because not many toy companies are the size of Disney. I mean, we've got Mattel and Hasbro and and a lot of managers out there. It seems like just take a stand and let the chips fall where they may. And if that's where your integrity is, it's about not waffling. I mean, that's really where I see the perception of Disney being difficult is that they they were one way and then they were the other way. What does a manager do in terms of creating a corporate ethics structure or their ethical identity, if you will, in the world? Yeah, that is a fantastic framing because what it highlights is that the idea of staying out of it doesn't exist anymore. You can't stay out of it. And so that means that the notion that leaders' jobs involve keeping everyone happy is off the table now. You're not going to keep everyone happy. So then what? Well, you're left as a leader with three dimensions that you have to understand. What can you live with and what can you absolutely not live with? What do you think is right and what do you think is wrong? And by the way, what you personally think right and wrong are uh, may or may not have an effect on your ultimate choice about what the company needs to do, but they sure do have an effect on how you sleep at night. The second is, what is the ethical context telling me? 20 years ago, uh, maybe not even that long ago, in plenty of places in this country, the idea of Disney saying nothing about legislation prohibiting conversation about gender or sexual orientation in elementary schools would have seemed fine to most people. But the ethical context has changed. So you got to keep up with what's going on around you and be prepared for it to shift very, very quickly. And the third thing is to know what your stakeholders are expecting. And then you've got to be regularly communicating and thinking through what matters to you before this stuff comes up. There is no way that this issue, this legislation, nor Disney stance in in any of it is the last challenge that companies that serve children and their families will face. It's not even the last one they're going to face this year. So for anybody who's sitting in a leadership role in any of those companies, start thinking right now about what you're going to do when the knock comes on your door, because it's coming. It's coming for all of us, no matter what industry we sit in. And we have to be ready to operate, as you say, with integrity. Nothing else matters. Ask for whom the bell tolls. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Hold for thee, Richard. Hold for thee. Yeah. Eric Joseph Campbell wrote about the hero's journey, and he found that in all epics, there are three parts to a hero becoming a hero. They depart the familiar world, they go out into a totally unfamiliar world, 
learn how to navigate it, play a few monsters, come home and are uh, rewarded and crowned with victory. And it seems to me that what is happening to the CEO of Disney is departed, he's in the initiation stage, and he could lose his life uh, conceptually, lose his job was what I mean, and not get to return as the hero. Do you think there is something of having to be a, this cause for a CEO to be a hero? It's, it's such a great question. And I say this as someone who sits in the chair of being a CEO, albeit of a much smaller company, and spends time with CEOs all over the world. I'll give you two, two ideas, Richard. The first is that the notion of CEO as a hero on the hero's journey is complicated now by the fact that there are multiple overlapping journeys happening simultaneously. The minute that hero goes out, slays the dragon and comes back, guess what? On the way back, it's time for another dragon and maybe five more dragons. And so the CEO doesn't get the opportunity to be the hero or to receive the accolades that she or he might have because you're only as good as the last dragon that you've slayed and there are lots more dragons than people are used to. The pace of complex decision-making that CEOs today are facing is unprecedented in our history. What do I mean by that? Every CEO in every industry has dealt with a global pandemic, the notion of working from home, what to do about COVID vaccine policy. And just as they thought they were starting to get a handle on all of that, welcoming workers back to the office, guess what? We've got the specter of another war in front of us. What do we do about our employees in those parts of the world. Oh, and by the way, what did we do two years ago when we were faced with challenge from the movement for black lives about companies' genuine commitment to diversity, equity, and inclusion? These kinds of issues have all been happening at once. And so the CEOs, not just on one hero's journey, they have to be on 20 at a time and have to figure out how do they maintain that hero status. And so with that in mind, I'll give you a different overlay here. Our firm works in the space of business psychology, and in psychology, there is the notion of the drama triangle, uh, Karpman's drama triangle, which has three roles in it, the hero, the victim, and the villain, and that any conflict, interpersonal conflict among people posits those three roles against each other. But if we get rid of the hero, we also have to get rid of the victim and the villain, and the opportunity for the CEO is today to present her or himself as a creator in a triangle that also has a challenger and a coach. And she might move around that triangle. She might be the coach or she might be the challenger to her team, but she can't be the hero anymore. Because otherwise, the minute she tries to be the hero, the risk is she moves around that first triangle and ends up being the villain just as quickly. It's a different frame. And this is the hard part for so many leaders. We all came up through a world that said the CEO needs to be the hero. Right. That's the leadership model that we were all trained in. Doesn't work anymore. Doesn't work anymore. And it's, it's interesting because there are lightning rod companies. Disney is one of them. Yeah. Mattel is another one. Anytime they do anything with Barbie... 
it is controversy because it it makes easy news. It makes easy facile news. When when they introduced a collectible based on Tokidoki when Barbie had tattoos, there was all of this challenge as if you know, a largely inert lump of plastic was going to get a child to go have a tattoo. Uh, there's that other factor, which is not just the the reality, but how that reality is being presented in the marketplace, hence crisis management. But it's really yeah. the difference between PR and crisis management. What does a company do confronted yeah. with something like that when, when there's clearly somebody working an angle to get clicks and engagement and likes, but it yeah. has nothing to do with the actual facts of the situation. Well, I think you gave us a great hint before, which is to say there cannot be any waffling. And so you're right that Disney and Hasbro and Mattel and any toy company uh, runs the risk of being a lightning rod. And this is true of children's publishers as well, because people project their own feelings onto children with the assumption that children can't and don't advocate for themselves. And therefore they need, and we all know that of course, not to be, uh, not to be true, but that children somehow need to be protected from one force or another. And therefore I can say, it's not about how I feel. It's about what we need to do for kids. So any company whose customer or, or customer base is children, and therefore parents runs the risk of being a lightning rod. So what do you do? It means for starters, it's not good enough to say what your values are as a company. Values tell us what we stand for, but we also have to articulate our morals. What do we not stand for? We do not stand for harm to children, and we believe that this is harmful to children. Now listen, different companies are gonna have different takes on what that harm is. But getting really clear about it and communicating it consistently, concisely, uh, with a message that is the same to your employees, to your customers, and to the media is the only way that you can maintain control of the narrative. Otherwise, somebody else is going to have a great soundbite that they're going to repeat over and over again right. with your face on a target. And that's, uh, that's no good for any organization. Eric, it seems to me that other than my pillow guy, no company really takes stances against gays or African-Americans or any groups that they tend to take positions that are egalitarian. This is in the face of this tremendous pushback. So what does that tell us about America, about the relationship between the brand and the consumer community? Does this tell us that these companies are more progressive in terms of how they see the world than their constituents do, or does it tell us nothing? Great question. Let me take that in two parts. The first part is that very few companies are coming out opposing marginalized groups. Very few, which I think is part, a part of your point, Richard. But What's different now is that with access to instant information, democratized no matter who you are, anybody, any Disney employee, for instance, can go online and see who companies are making donations to. So we can say as Disney, oh, we have an, a policy that affirms LGBTQ people. But then their employees are going online and saying, then why are you making donations to anti-LGBT politicians? 
And so this is where the integrity part comes in. It's not enough to say that you are supportive of X marginalized group. Your actions have to align or your constituents don't believe you anymore. If you take a look at what the Disney Employees Coalition has said, they've been very clear that this is about Disney's actions matching their rhetoric. Does it mean that companies are becoming more progressive? What I would say is that companies are recognizing that among their stakeholders is a much more diverse group than many of them experienced, anticipated, planned for, or sold to when they were founded. And as they look to continue to remain relevant, they recognize that they have to be relevant, not just to their audiences from when they started, but to their audiences today, which are much different than the audiences that they served historically. I think Chris made a very good comment earlier on about the younger consumers or a generation that as five-year-olds got to pick out the color for the family car. They also grew up in a community in which being gay was not outside the norm. Yeah. They have a very, very different. Are these companies also taking a long view and saying this is going to be a bigger and bigger part of the consuming public? I hope so. The ones that want to survive will. We're at a moment where everybody in business that wants to be around for more than a few years has to be a bit of a fortune teller. That is to say, what are the needs? What are the expectations? What does the future hold that is different from today? We got to operate for today, but we got to plan for tomorrow. And listen, that's not just about social issues. All of the companies that we've talked about and lots of others are saying, how are we going to get product to consumers in an increasingly digital world? How do we have to completely move from, say, a primarily retail focus to an omni-channel focus? How do we move from engaging kids who we used to engage through television commercials when most of their media consumption doesn't involve television commercials anymore. They have to be thinking about not only how do we survive in this moment, but what's coming up that we haven't thought of yet. And that, uh, that bit of fortune telling is a little scary. It's a lot of fun and it presents tremendous opportunities for the companies that are not just thinking about today's success, but that want to be here for the long run. Eric, it seems to me an example of the Walt Disney Company. To be a hero, the CEO needs to slay the dragon so completely that future politicians will be very wary about coming after the Walt Disney Company. What Chris referenced and you referenced is that waffling doesn't work. You can't slay the dragon with a waffle. <laughs> <laughs> That's this bit about integrity and in messaging and about being clear, consistent, and definitive in what you stand for and what you won't stand for. You are not going to slay that dragon with lots of little cuts. It's got to be uh, cut off that dragon's head or the next one is coming for you before you've even turned around. Eric, you have a new book coming out. You referenced it before. It's called Difficult Decisions. Tell us a little bit about what that book is about. Difficult Decisions, uh, subtitle How Leaders Make the Right Call with Insight, Integrity, and Empathy, is uh, a function of the fact that the leaders I've worked with over the past decade and more have been dealing with more complex ethical issues than any of them expected throughout the course of their lives or their tenure as leaders. They want to know, who is it okay to take money from? They want to know, when do I take a political stance? When do I step back? They want to know, 
how do I throw away an entire strategy that we've built as a business on the backs of thousands of people's work when on its surface, it may seem like it's working, but it's not future-proof. These are human subjective issues. There's been a big push for leaders to think about how do we use more data, 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 data. What does the data say? What do the analytics tell us? That's important. But leaders for today and tomorrow have to be just as skilled at the subjective human elements of complex decision-making as they are at the analytical elements where there is hard data that they can follow. And so I sat down with leaders across industries. I've got examples from lots of different companies who told me stories about their own journeys. And what I will say is that the idea is not to impose a particular view of morality or of ethics on any leader, but instead to say, hopefully you can use the book to clarify what matters to you, what the context is that you're operating in, and what your stakeholders expect of you in your role. So that when the next thing comes, and like I said, it's coming for us, ready or not, that you've got a framework that you can use to make a difficult decision. Okay, Eric, we're going to ask you the question we're asking every guest on season four of the Playground podcast. What was your favorite play experience as a child? Oh, my goodness. I, uh, that's a great question. Uh well, you know, I was always a reader, so any time that I could uh, spend time with books uh, was was a happy time for me as a kid, and that extended not just to reading the books themselves, but to playing library, playing school, pretending that I was somewhere, uh, even writing stories and plays. You know, I've, I've been a playwright for many years, but one of my earliest memories is sitting at an old manual typewriter and trying to type out a play script uh, for uh, for friends and family and my poor younger brother who was uh, drafted into every performance to be a part of. <laughs> That's great. I have thought of that in a while. Thank you guys for that. Eric Pliner, CEO of YSC, the Leadership and Strategy Consultancy. Thank you so much for spending the time with us. The book is called Difficult Decisions. It's available now. And we will all look forward to digging into that because I think it's really important for today's market. Thank you so much. This is the Playground Podcast, and we'll be right back with the end cap. And now we come to the part of the show that we call the end cap, where Richard and I talk about issues that are top of mind in the toy industry. And today we're going to have a little bit of fun because, Richard, you published an article from Spillsbury about the top retro toys in each state. And this is this is hilarious. And I'm going to jump in because in Delaware, where I grew up, it was Baby Alive. And Kathy Harris, who lived behind us, now I'm one of four boys, and Kathy <laughs> Harris had a baby alive. So what we did with her brother was we fed baby alive clothesline. So the clothesline <laughs> went all the way through baby alive, and then we held it taut, and baby alive chewed her way across the clothesline, to which Kathy said, I'm telling, <laughs> and we all got in trouble. <laughs> well, you know, I thought this was pretty cute. And I think it's interesting to look at some of these things. For instance, in Alaska, the most uh, popular retro toy was Monopoly. Right. Now, now, surprisingly, Monopoly only showed up in, I think, one of the state, Georgia. So I'm thinking Alaska, maybe because it's so cold outside. <laughs> right. They, they have the time in the winter to play a long game. <laughs> Yeah, they stayed inside. And then in Vermont, I noticed, Chris, play a lot of Magic 8-Ball. <laughs> they're very concerned about the future. Right, right. 
But we saw a lot of Barbie, Hot Wheels, PlayStation, Silly Putty in Wyoming. I'm not sure why that why that showed up. Louisiana. The silly Putty capital of the world. <laughs> right. Uh, Louisiana was the Easy Bake Oven, uh, also in North Dakota. So I guess those are bastions of baking. But again, it's it's a funny concept that it sort of speaks to the fact that we don't let go of our toys as we get older. And this was based on Google Trends search data over the past 12 months. But as even as we grow up, we maintain that connection to the toys we had as kids. Oh, absolutely. And I, I think that they do bring back warm memories of childhood. Chris, one thing I noticed was interesting, Hasbro is located in Rhode Island and Mr. Potato Head made by Hasbro, is the most popular toy there, while in California, the home of Mattel, it's Hot Wheels, a product that they make. So there is something to being a hometown company. I think when we're talking about retro toys, we're also talking about time before the internet. So your local toy company would be the one that you saw and you supported and that you were engaged with. So it really is a fun way to, to look back. And I'll give some advice to anybody who ever feels awkward at a party. All you have to do is ask somebody, what did you love playing with as a kid? And they will open up to you. It's just, it's just an easy way to get a conversation started. One thing about this is we would have to say, like they say for the Magic 8-Ball, for entertainment purposes only. <laughs> because this is this is clearly not a scientific sample based on age or demography or whatever but it's it certainly is fun to realize culturally how strong the memories are for certain ones of these toys that's really part of why it's fun to look back also Chris it looks to me from looking at the list that the toys that made it are have been around a long time they're multi-generational really most of these Date back to the 60s and the 70s. Certainly, we're all going to have our favorite toys. We're all going to have toys that shaped our childhoods and shaped uh, who we are today. I remember you were saying you loved your typewriter. I loved my matchbox cars. And uh, all of these things are... are... <laughs> we both loved fire. And we both loved fire. <laughs> fire did not make the list. <laughs> As... <laughs> Anybody who wants to see the list, he... If you go to Global Toy News, you will find it under the heading, the most popular retro toy in every state. And it's a little bit of fun here on the Playground Podcast. I'm Chris Byrne with my co-host and cohort, Richard Gottlieb. We are brought to you by Global Toy Experts, The Toy Guy, and Beacon Media. And thanks for listening in. We'll see you next time.